Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Nine years after the launch of the Belt and Road Initiative, China's flagship global infrastructure investment program is at a critical juncture. While many countries were initially eager to sign up for the initiative and take advantage of China's offer of financing without conditions of liberal democratic governance, the BRI has recently lost some of its luster in the face of mounting obstacles, including delays, corruption, and heavy debt burdens associated with its projects. Going forward, the trajectory of the initiative will have important implications for strategic competition, especially given the increasingly contested nature of global connectivity. Over the past year, CNAS researchers have been thinking through how the BRI might develop in the two key regions of Europe and the Indo-Pacific, forecasting different scenarios for its evolution along with their respective consequences. This research was recently published in a report entitled Competitive Connectivity, Crafting Transatlantic Responses to the Belt and Road Initiative, which outlines how the U.S. and Europe can work together to compete against the BRI. And today we're pleased to do something a little bit different and get together the co-authors of the CNAS report uh, to talk about the report and its findings. Um, so welcome to the podcast uh, CNAS team. Great to be here. Very quick, um, just brief bio so everyone knows who we're talking to. We're really welcome to have Lisa Curtis, who is a senior fellow and the director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at CNAS. We're joined by Jake Stokes, who's a fellow with the Indo-Pacific Security Program at CNAS, and Josh Fitt, who is an associate fellow in the program. And we're also joined by uh, the Transatlantic Security Program's own Carissa Nietzsche, who is an associate fellow here, and Nick Loker, who is a research assistant. All right, excited to do this, a little something different. Um, but Jake, maybe I can start with you just to lay some of the foundations um, and kind of go back to the basics. Can you just give us a brief overview of what the Belt and Road Initiative is, kind of how China can, you know, thinks about this initiative um, and particularly what it has been looking to accomplish with the Belt and Road Initiative in Europe in particular. Sure. Well, thanks again, Andrea. It's great to be here. So the Belt and Road Initiative is a core initiative for uh, China's leader, Xi Jinping. He initiated the Belt and Road Initiative uh, late in the first year that he was in power, late in 2013, so about nine years ago. And he's about to embark on his third five-year term. So he started in his first five-year term, and we're about to start on the third. Um, the basic idea of Belt and Road was to use China's vast financial resources and construction capacity to help the rest of the world develop the way that China did during its meteor meteoric economic rise of preceding decades. And this, the simple idea is using infrastructure as a platform to drive the rest of the economy. Uh, Xi Jinping made very big promises. Uh, it was sort of a very splashy initiative. He called it the project of the century. It's also very important to him personally. It's been enshrined into the Communist Party's constitution, and Xi Jinping has actually released a standalone book of speeches that he's made on the initiative. In terms of goals, China's goals for the Belt and Road Initiative span trade, economics, technology, diplomacy, and also the security realms. Um, so in the report, we, we go through each of those uh, in detail, um, but I'll just hit a couple highlights here very briefly. 
domestically, the core ideas were for um, to provide an outlet for excess industrial capacity, big Chinese companies that basically didn't have as much work as they needed to do in China, so they wanted to do it around the world instead. Um, to, and then also to deepen integration between China's wealthy eastern coastal provinces and some of its poor central and western inland uh, provinces by basically sending commerce through east-west routes. Uh, China also had some kind of international goals in the trade and economic space. Uh, ultimately, BRI was seeking to embed China at the center of a regional and global trade routes and value chains. Um, and then also support major pillars of China's state-directed industrial strategy, uh, including gaining a dominant share in the shipping sector, shaping technological standards, and driving both the existing and future digital economies. Um, there are also just a few foreign policy goals that were important. Um, one is uh, basically using BRI as a platform for the rest of the world to benefit ostensibly from China's emergence as a global power. That's what China argued that it was doing. And the logical extension is that the rest of the world should therefore accept China's regional and global leadership ambitions. Um, more tact or, you know, more concretely, uh, BRI routes were meant to, to connect China uh, to the Indian Ocean without going through the Strait of Malacca, which could be a choke point for global trade. Um, and then also to help uh, blunt international criticism of China by basically using the leverage from these BRI deals to pressure uh, governments to avoid criticizing China. And then finally, in both the commercial places and uh, the military installations uh, that have grown up alongside China's growing global interest, the BRI has sort of helped China's military, the People's Liberation Army, to operate more globally uh, to help protect those sprawling global interests. So that's an overview of just some of the goals uh, China has for the Belt and Road Initiative. So I'm, Jim, I'm gonna steal your question. Um, which I know you wanted to ask from the outset, um, which is kind of how is it doing? I know Jim really wanted to ask you all kind of in, about a report card. Um, I don't know, Jim, why don't you jump in? This is your question. I, now I feel bad stealing it. <laughs> no, go ahead. This is, this is, uh, this makes me feel good that you recognize that I do have questions and and then you've stealing them. So I, I'm feeling good. <laughs> it's the, so the highest form going. of flattery. Yes. It is, it is. Go. Uh, I don't know if who wants to jump in and kind of, I mean, obviously in the European context, there's a lot about um, kind of whether the Belt and Road Initiative really has legs anymore, whether it's kind of uh, petered out. So Lisa, do you want to jump in and kind of give us a broad sense of, of where we are with the Belt and Road currently? Well, I'll talk a little bit about how it's gone in the Indo-Pacific region and then um, turn to others to, to talk about Europe. Uh, but as you mentioned, Andrea, in your opening remarks, uh, while countries were initially eager to sign up for this, you know, 10, 11 years ago, uh, things have not really been panning out um, how I think China or, or these countries uh, expected. And the sheen has really come off of BRI, at least uh, in the indo Indo-Pacific region. Um, we've heard a lot about the heavy debt burdens that uh, some of these projects have brought to countries like Sri Lanka or uh, Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan. Um, and Sri Lanka is a really um, stark case of a country that has uh, become extremely indebted uh, to China 
to the extent that it had to lease out uh, its ham and toe to port to China, uh, who, who now you know has a 99-year lease on that port because Sri Lanka could not uh, pay back its debt uh, for this port. And more recently in Sri Lanka, uh, not solely because of uh, Chinese loans to the country, but in part, uh, has gotten itself into a tremendous economic crisis that has caused um, the president to have to uh, leave the country, not only resign, but leave the country. Um, and so I think that we can see by the Sri Lanka case, the some of the pitfalls of these countries relying too much on Chinese loans for developing their infrastructure. Pakistan is another case. Uh, you know, nine years ago, the China-Pakistan economic corridor was touted as, um, you know, this great savior for the Pakistan economy was going to help with their energy blackouts and, uh, you know, serve as a, uh, a transportation route, you know, from China through Pakistan going to the port at Gwadar in Baluchistan province. Um, and it just, it really has not happened. And Pakistan itself has had some major debt issues in the last couple of years. And so this grand vision that uh, everybody had uh, about uh, CPEC being able to industrialize Pakistan and turn it into this manufacturing hub uh, has has just not panned out. Um, so I think you know it's not to say that there haven't been some successful BRI projects in these countries, and I think you could look to Indonesia as a country that you know has seen some benefits uh, from BRI, but also Indonesia has exercised more control. I think than other countries, they've been deeply involved in in how the projects would be structured. They've um, insisted that Indonesians would be used uh, in the projects because another problem has been the Chinese bring in their own workers, and you know we're talking about places where unemployment is already an issue. Uh, so there's been uh, backlash against that. So. Uh, I think, you know, by and large, there have been more questions raised about BRI than not. And I think moving forward, we're going to see countries uh, exercise more caution, be more involved in setting the terms of these investments. Um, and we also see that other countries are welcoming the U.S. and Europe uh, in, you know, offering to, to get more involved to uh, provide alternative investment. And so I think, you know, that's that's what we're going to see moving forward. We'll definitely come back to that idea about kind of how the U.S. and Europe together are looking to compete with the Belt and Road, Lisa. So we'll come back to you on that. But Nick, to what extent does what Lisa said um, resonate in the European context? Do you see kind of some parallels to what she was talking about in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, I would say um, looking looking in the, the context of Europe, there's definitely a, a similar trend to the one that uh, Lisa identified playing out in the Indo-Pacific. Um, at the at sort of the in the early days of the BRI, um, I think there was a lot of enthusiasm in Europe to to get on board with the initiative. Um, many uh, European countries uh, signed memorandums of understanding with China uh, to get involved with the BRI, including uh, I believe 17 EU member states. So it was. There was quite a lot of uh, enthusiasm at the at the beginning, um, especially in countries that were that were struggling with the after effects of the of the uh, eurozone uh, debt crisis and didn't really have a lot of alternative sources of financing. For for instance, Greece. Um, and during during this time, you saw the 
establishment of many of uh, China's large-scale flagship BRI projects in Europe. For example, in Greece, you had uh, uh, Chinese investment in the, the port of Piraeus, um, where China was was able to fill fill in a financing gap that uh, for Greece at the time, and um, and just in general, there was a lot of uh, eagerness in the, in these early days. But I would say as time went on. Um, We've definitely noticed that there's there's been more uh, increasing skepticism of the BRI in Europe, um, and just in the last few years, I I, um, I would say that a number of countries have have been pushing back against the initiative due to uh, various concerns, um, including uh, Beijing's coercive behavior as well as the potential risks associated with Chinese investment. So. For example, you can look at the case of Lithuania, which just in the past uh, past couple of years has had a broader diplomatic spat with with China, um, and in the context of these worsening relations, uh, decided to block Chinese investment in the port of Klaipeda uh, there. And uh, similarly, Estonia backed out of plans to partner with China on the construction of a tunnel through the Baltic Sea. And Romania backed out of a partnership with China to build nuclear reactors in the country. And that's all just been in the last couple of years. Um, and I would say in general, this trend of, of countries becoming more skeptical about the BRI has mirrored the broader trend in Europe-China relations, um, which have really, really soured in the last few years. There's been a, a shift from uh, the framing of China from a, a partner to a competitor, or even in some cases as a system, systemic rival for Europe. So. And the BRI, the BRI really fits into this broader, broader shift that's happening uh, in relations between Europe and China. Uh, that being said, I, I would say that you know it, it is a mixed bag still for the BRI in Europe. Not all countries are pushing back against the initiative. Um, Greece is still uh, a very willing partner of China in the BRI. Just in the in the last year, uh, the Chinese um, state-owned uh, enterprise that invested in the, the port of Piraeus increased its stake. 67 percent. Um, in addition, countries such as uh, Hungary and Serbia, which have governments that are a little bit more friendly with China to begin with, have also um, maintained their their willingness to, to partner with with China on the BRI. So, overall, grading the BRI in Europe, it's it's a, a mixed bag, um, uh, which has definitely uh, definitely the perform it's it's performed worse in the past few years. However, it definitely can't be counted out looking into the future. Jumping in here. Thanks, Andrea and Jim, uh, for having us on the podcast. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this report. Um, one of the major purposes of the report was to co sort of compare and contrast BRI in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific. So one trend we noticed in our research um, in the Indo-Pacific, of course, you know, not every country's experience with BRI is, is universal, but um, one trend was that in countries where there is actually significant investment from the United States, uh, particularly led by the private sector, um, examples like Indonesia and the Philippines, um, you know, compared to sort of like the shiny, you know, bridges and roads and railways and ports, um, regardless of how successful the projects have been, I suppose, um, you know, the fact that if you walk down the major commercial center or of the of the capital city, 50% of the stores are American brands, there's still a perception that China is more present in those countries because of um, the sort of diplomatic accompaniments of the Belt and Road. Um, 
efforts. So I'm wondering, is there a similar sentiments? Uh, is that trend mirrored at all in the European context as well? Chris or Nick, do you want to pick up on that one? Sure. Yeah. So I mean, I think you definitely see this to a large extent with digital infrastructure. So um, Huawei launched a really large charm offensive in Europe to try to bring along European allies to implement Huawei 5G kit in their 5G rollouts. Um, you'll see, you know, photos, billboards everywhere that's advertising Huawei's products. I mean, Politico Europe's daily newsletter for a while was actually sponsored by Huawei. Um, you see some Euractive pages um, on technology also sponsored by Huawei. So I certainly think that, um, you know, that charm offensive, that desire to really get out there um, was pretty present a couple of years ago. I think that's starting to change, though. And I think um, if you look at the 5G case study in particular, the United States was a really big piece of, you know, one, calling out potential security risks for Huawei, and then two, just by using the foreign direct product rule, preventing Huawei from being able to get the chips that it needed for 5G rollout. So the U.S. Um, response and reaction, I think, has taken hold in Europe, at least on those digital infrastructure initiatives, and has led to a bit of a changing tide on this issue in Europe and how it's perceived. So I think the security risks are very illuminated and highlighted, particularly because of the U.S.'s government's diplomacy, as well as um, in the case of 5G, just hobbling Huawei from being able to compete against, you know, Nokia and Ericsson in that market. Yeah, I think there's a general recognition, um, even within the European Union, that they haven't been as proactive as they could be on the branding front. And, you know, thinking about the Balkans and some of those regions where, as you're saying, Josh, uh, very much paralleling the Indo-Pacific, where the European Union is a larger uh, provider of investment, that there is an outsized perception of what China actually gives. And I think there's a recognition of that in the European Union. Um, I've seen it play out even in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war, where um, you know Russia is doing, um, in many cases, a better job controlling the narrative in places like the Middle East and Africa, Latin America. So I think there is this growing recognition um, that in both the United States, but also in Brussels, um, that they need to do more on uh, the information environment. So hopefully that's something that will we'll change. But Jim, I know you had a question you wanted to throw in. Um, you know, I did, but I've forgotten it because I'm still stunned that you took my first question. And so I'm having a hard time recovering. But let me let me ask this, though. Um, you know, you've laid out a very interesting story on how things have fared for Beijing in terms of Belt and Road. Uh, Road. You know, this is their uh, uh, their their mainstream, their centerpiece in terms of their foreign policy, but it sounds like it's beginning to get a, a bit bogged down, certainly not giving what they uh, were hoping it would give uh, by now. Um, it's, it's, do you think in the future, as we look at the BRI, if you're a policymaker in Brussels or in Washington, uh, is this something that we should continue to worry about and, and, uh, and worry that nations are going to be sucked into these kinds of uh, predatory relationships with the Chinese or or really, this is going to be something that's going to peter out, and uh, it could be replaced by something else, uh, equal nefarious, equally nefarious. Uh, what do you What do you think? What how How would you be right now, sitting around a table on the NSC and advising the president? 
Yeah, so um, I'm so glad you asked this question, Jen, because really the main task of our report was to lay out three potential very high-risk scenarios for the evolution of the BRI in Europe and the Indo-Pacific. So happy to quickly march through these and kind of give you the big contours of what we're seeing. I will caveat this with we did pick the highest risk scenarios to highlight. So you won't see, you know, us sounding the death knell of the BRI entirely um, in this report. Um, but um, the highest risk scenario, I think, was the first one we outlined, which we term ascendant China. Um, in this scenario, we see China sidestep a major economic slowdown, as unlikely as that sounds. Um, but really, um, when compared with European economies, which we posit would face a great slowdown due to ramifications from the Ukraine crisis, the energy crisis in Europe. So in this scenario, you can imagine that Beijing is more assertive on the global stage. It's able to use economic leverage for political ends. Um, we posit that they'll revive the Belt and Road Initiative and return it to its core purpose, so critical and di digital infrastructure. So ports, undersea cables, um, 5G, cloud computing. Um, a key feature of this scenario, which we saw across all of the scenarios, so this will become a very familiar trend that you'll hear, is that Beijing rebrands the BRI um, to make it more palatable for European audiences. So this is about, you know, spurring economic growth and global development. There is a heightened focus on green energy. And then we also see an attempt to address concerns such as debt traps, carbon footprints, and a lack of transparency. In this scenario, we posit that um, alternatives to the BRI, so Global Gateway, the Blue Dot Network, the Global Investment and Infrastructure Partnership, all struggle to get off the ground. So as you can imagine in Europe, this means we see a real uptick of BRI investment in the European South, in Greece, um, in countries with high debt burdens like Italy and Spain, and then those who already have a pre-existing relationship with Beijing and Hungary. Um, that's kind of the first highest risk scenario. And the second that we outline, we call competition through infrastructure. Um, in this scenario, we really see this shift towards competition with Beijing. So what Nick had mentioned earlier, that we see a real souring of relations between Beijing and Europe. Um, this causes a lot of partner countries to start to rethink that relationship with Beijing. How can they reassess strategic dependencies? Maybe do they want to selectively decouple? in really high risk areas like critical and digital infrastructure. And then this of course creates headwinds for the Belt and Road in Europe. So in this particular scenario, we think some of the higher risks is that um, Beijing will focus more narrowly and it will gain inroads in select countries. So those are going to again be some pre-existing friends of Beijing, Hungary, um, but what we'll really see here is BRI start to gain more traction outside of Europe and the Indo-Pacific. So as we look to the global south or to countries with large reserves of critical minerals. And then finally, um, scenario three, we look at um, this is truly Beijing's charm offensive at its best in this scenario. So um, this one we'll see um, maybe Beijing begins to drop retaliatory responses to Europe's criticisms about human rights abuses, dropping sanctions against European lawmakers, shelving wolf warrior diplomacy tactics. Um, and in this scenario, what we think is really um, what we'll see most of is a focus on the clean energy transition. So an attempt to win Europe over by helping with green energy projects, as well as 
a focus on um, the reconstruction of Ukraine. So how will that project be a flagship project of the revived BRI? Um, and then finally, we do posit that there will still be some European countries who are willing to partner um, with China on critical or digital infrastructure projects, particularly those who have close pre-existing ties. Um, so those are kind of, as we march through them, three of the main scenarios as we see them that are the highest risk for Europe and the Indo-Pacific um, regarding this future of the Belt and Road Initiative. And then again, the major trend that we've seen is that we pause, there will be this rebranding of the BRI. And this is something that the Wall Street Journal recently reported on is already underway in Beijing. So we hope the report provides a little bit of um, contact into how we might see Beijing rebrand, but happy to open up to my um, colleagues on the line. Go ahead, Jake. Just, and just to put some, I think that's the, Krista, you hit on what, a, like, I think one of the real value add or the kind of key takeaways from the report, because I think there is this perception out there, Jim, you were hitting on it as we were talking before we recorded that the, that the Belt and Road Initiative really has run out of steam, that it's lackluster, that Beijing is moving away. But this idea about rebranding and expecting that Beijing will kind of adapt and evolve the way it approaches Europe in the future, I think, is, is something that's really worth thinking through. But, Jake, I know you wanted to add. Sure. I, I mean, I think the variety of the scenarios that we covered in the paper and that Carissa laid out so ably uh, reminds us that BRI has always been a pretty nebulous program. Uh, there's always been pretty few limits on its geographic or functional scope, and it's been hard to pin down. But that same quality makes it flexible. Um, and, and we definitely see the potential for uh, Chinese economic straight, statecraft to, to respond to this and, and to rebrand, but also uh, to reshape the underlying substance. In the report, we talked about you know, the beginning of some of those trends we're already seeing in, in BRI. Uh, the first and most obvious one is the, the general funding slowdown uh, since the early years when Beijing was really announcing projects at breakneck pace. And that one is going to be, of course, huge as China faces a major economic slowdown at home and the real estate and the tech sector and reverberations more broadly. We're also seeing an attempt to, to rebrand, but also change the underlying substance on uh, BRI's image regarding project standards. So trying to understand what the main criticisms from the West, but also from partner countries, primarily in the global South are, uh, respond to those and to maintain BRI's attractiveness by at least changing the structure of projects somewhat. Third, I think we see a change in the composition of BRI projects uh, away from the hard infrastructure of roads and bridges and, and more towards digital infrastructure, including in the digital Silk Road or under that umbrella. But if we also uh, dig deep into how the PRC is talking about the Belt and Road Initiative, hard infrastructure has always been just one pillar, right? There are other pillars of the Belt and Road that we could see getting more emphasis going forward. So those would be policy coordination, unimpeded trade, financial integration, and also people-people ties, which especially once we get past a, a zero COVID, China will, I imagine, will get a lot of emphasis. The last thing I'll say right now is that we also see BRI being supplemented with additional kind of supporting initiatives, uh, including uh, Xi Jinping's Global Development Initiative and Global Security Initiative, uh, which in, in many ways kind of sound like 
replacements for BRI, but I think they will end up being more sup, uh, supplements. So the future of BRI is definitely going to look different from the early years or even the middle years as the program evolves to stay viable, to continue to serve China's interests and avoid some of its most costly missteps. Uh, but I wouldn't uh, declare it dead quite yet. Yeah. Um, Lisa, I wanted to pick up with you on kind of how you're seeing uh, Western efforts to compete with the Belt and Road. And Carissa mentioned some of the Western initiatives that were designed, in fact, to compete with, with, with Beijing on this issue. Can you kind of give us the lay of the land? It feels like there have been a number of proliferating efforts. Um, and so if you can just help us make sense of kind of where we are on those efforts to compete um, and where, where, where we should expect that to go. Great, thank you. Yes, I think that we have made progress in bringing to light some of the problems with uh, the BRI and the lack of transparency uh, that has been associated with, with these projects and some of these problems. And part of that was uh, as a result of the Blue Dot Network initiative that was um, announced in the end of the Trump administration. And this was done in conjunction with the Australian and Japanese governments. And the idea was that the Blue Dot Network would you know, validate uh, lending for high quality projects. And it would serve as a, a clearinghouse for proposed infrastructure projects and provide a grading system uh, which looked at the financial transparency, commercial viability, sustainability, and the adherence to environmental and community standards. So I think through that effort, uh, there has been more attention to a lot of the problems of the BRI, which we've been talking about. But what we've seen from the Biden administration is an even more concerted effort and an effort to provide alternatives uh, with the recognition that these countries uh, need infrastructure financing, that this need is not going away. And so we have seen the introduction of the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, which was initially dubbed the Build Back Better World Initiative. Um, and this, of course, was done at the G7 in uh, Germany uh, earlier this year. And the goal of this initiative is to meet the infrastructure needs of mainly low and middle income countries through a values-driven, high-standard, and transparent partnership led by the major democracies. So, uh, and the countries together pledged $600 billion for the initiative over the next five years, which is quite substantial. So I think that is a, a promising initiative uh, that the U.S. is doing in conjunction uh, with Europe and its other partners, because I think the idea is that uh, separately, our countries really aren't going to have a great impact, that China has this capability to invest and provide loans uh, because, you know, through its state-controlled companies. Uh, but together, if the U.S. joins forces with other like-minded countries, that together we can start making a dent in the offerings to these countries. Uh, so that's really what we're pursuing. Of course, the Quad also has an infrastructure working group, the Quad being the United States, India, Australia, and Japan. Uh, this is one of their main coordination groups is looking at infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific. What are the needs, mapping out those needs, 
and seeing how they can work in a complementary fashion to providing alternatives to Chinese investments. Just want to add my two cents real quick on this concept of a rebrand of BRI. So I think the sort of way that partner countries in the Indo-Pacific at least view the comparative advantages of BRI, um, such as they are, is speed and cost. Now, unfortunately, in the long run, in many cases, it ends up not actually being the case. The projects take longer than they're expected to and cost more than they were uh, also initially expected to. Um, but with with a rebrand, I don't see, even if you take into account the criticisms of you know, the United States and the EU, as well as the, the recipient countries, um, sort of following the, the criticism and, and working to resolve that, I think would actually draw away from those comparative advantages. And especially with the emergence of com competition uh, or al rather alternatives from the United States and Europe, as Lisa was describing, um, I don't really see that being quite as effective. Just to jump in very quickly on the, um, the question of alternatives, I, I think that um, Lisa's quite right that we've that we've made a, a lot of a lot of progress. Um, I do think that the the jury is still out a little bit, especially when when you look at the um, the EU's efforts um, with the global gateway. So the global gateway was was announced just uh, late last year, um, and as as the EU's uh, con like uh, connectivity initiative, and. I think that there's it's it's still a very nascent project, and it's it's come under sort of uh, some significant criticism for rather than um, rather than dedicating a lot of new funding, it's really just more of a it seems to be more of rebranding current funding um, under one banner, and and I think you know there's a risk here that the global gateway is really just more of a a, a loose network of projects rather than a cohesive connectivity strategy that is mobilizing additional funding. So I, I think that um, definitely as these projects um, get off the ground and, and are um, being implemented, we need to uh, take care that that, that doesn't occur. Um, I, I think also that uh, making sure that there's some synchronization between, between the US and EU efforts here is going to be important. Um, especially to avoid duplication of efforts. So um, one, one uh, way that, that uh, the US and the EU could, could work together here is by using the existing uh, US-EU dialogue on China um, as a, a vehicle for sort of institutionalizing this coordination. Well, thank you for, the, for all of that. I, uh, I'm, I, I feel like I've got a better handle now on where BRI is today. But let me ask you, uh, you know, you all were mentioning that in a sense, they're going to go through a rebranding re of the BRI. They're going to be trying to uh, refresh it a little bit. What do you think Beijing has learned from their experience? Do you think they've learned that uh, the third world is not as easy pickings as they thought it would be? That uh, that uh, maybe this has a you know, uh, this BRI can work for a couple of years, but it's going to have a definite shelf life. Or do they feel that they've been really successful and they're going to rebrand and really make it even bigger and better than the than it was in the beginning? I mean, what's what does Beijing take away from this experience with the BRI? Um, and then I guess then that'll help shape what they might be thinking about for whatever follows on afterwards. So what's their takeaway? Jim, I, I think. Um, I mean, one challenge with the opacity of the, you know, uh, CCP regime in Beijing is it, it's hard to get 
um, a fulsome and frankly honest or frank sense of, of how they're viewing this, um, and especially in a context where uh, Xi Jinping and his initiatives are hard to criticize um, in, in the context of China's domestic policy debate. I don't think we exactly know how they're thinking about it. Broadly speaking, I would imagine that uh, they're thinking it's been more successful than than the West um, would portray it as, uh, but it's still probably a mixed bag. Um, and that the issue in their mind is probably more about uh, implementation uh, than it is about the fundamental idea being wrong. In addition, you know, engagement with uh, the global South or the developing world is a, a huge focus of Chinese foreign policy. You know, they talk about uh, so-called South-South diplomacy, um, but also as it relates to the Indo-Pacific, especially, you know, they have this concept of periphery diplomacy of trying to to work and shape uh, Asia as a strategic region uh, and the Indo-Pacific as a strategic region. And so, I think, especially as they look at cases, um, you know, like Indonesia, that that they've had some success relative to what they might have otherwise without the BRI. Um, and so, I think it kind of remains to be seen of. Uh, how much the, of the refresh will be focused on um, BRI itself or how much it might be respread among those different initiatives that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but I think the, the, the kind of contest for the Global South, influence in the Global South, is still a very live one in Beijing's mind. And so uh, in some policy uh, schools of thought here in Washington, and I would imagine in Brussels too, there's kind of a view of, you know, let BRI peter out on its own. I think ultimately, you know, we can't be complacent. We have to keep moving forward and providing real alternatives. And, and that's really going to be the best for driving outcomes in the global south and helping people and improving economic growth, but also positioning ourselves well geopolitically. Jim, I think the, the I, I completely agree with Jake. I mean, the, essentially the answer to your question depends on what the objective really is. And so that also depends on the country we're talking about in specific uh specifically so for example like if it's a if it's uh if the goal was to acquire you know strategic holdings in other countries of course you know the example of sri lanka acquiring that lease on hamantota port that's a big win despite the unrest in the country if the goal was to keep chinese workers busy overseas of course you know that's a, a major success for beijing um given the the challenges that many recipient countries have faced in terms of you know not being able to to use their own workers for these projects benefiting their own communities if the objective was elite capture um you know sweetening the pot uh you know being able to use these nice ribbon cutting ceremonies as political leverage again i think there have been several cases of the, of success on that front um <clears throat> even to a degree if the objective was to garner more positive views of china um as bad as belt and road has been about delivering on promises in so many examples uh as i was trying to allude to with my earlier question there's still a sense of, you know, and I'm using air quotes here, which unfortunately the listeners won't be able to see, but at least they show up um, as, you know, maybe mismatched the perception is of investment versus actual investment. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that the answer kind of depends on on what the objective really was. I, I know Chris had talked about future scenarios, but I wonder if you all are willing to weigh in on kind of where you think 
we're most likely headed. And of course, on Brussels sprouts, we've been so focused on how the Russia-Ukraine war is shaping dynamics in Europe, um, but also more broadly, big changes in Central Asia, for example, with a lot of countries taking a harder line on Russia, which may perhaps open up opportunities that China might try to exploit. But kind of given that, I don't know if you all want to weigh in on both sides, both the Indo-Pacific team, kind of how you think the war has or has not changed how uh, China is looking at Europe. And then Carissa and Nick, if you want to weigh in on how you think this war may or may not have shaped European perceptions of China. Um, but Jake, do you want to kick it off? Sure. Well, I, I think, uh, the, you know, the war has had a major effect on all kinds of uh, global calculations. Um, I'm not so sure that it's changed uh, how China is looking at Europe and what China wants from Europe, but I think it's changed the strategic environment in Europe about what types of Chinese engagement are, are going to work, right? I, I think it's raised or changed uh, or helped drive that shift that Nick was talking about earlier away from a view as China primarily as a commercial trade and technological opportunity and uh, to one that that has an important governance dimension, uh, including in international politics and and certainly closer ties between uh, Beijing and Moscow uh, going back uh, bef well before the February uh, joint statement that you know became famous for including the term no limits. I think even before that there was, uh, you know, a, a shifting view about what the implications of uh, a more global uh, China are, but also a more powerful uh, China economically um, and also technologically, especially as as we're at a in pretty important moment in the technological evolution and uh, how that relates to governance issues and uh, and also military power going forward. Um, so I I think as a result of the kind of souring to some extent in Europe on relations with China, um, Beijing is unlikely to, uh, you know, to, to shift its approach too much, uh, primarily because we haven't seen uh, a lot of um, flexibility at the strategic level um, from Xi Jinping and, and coming into the 20th Party Congress in, in the fall, I think most uh, expect to see um, uh, at least a harder line, if not, if not an even uh, tougher line coming out of Beijing uh, as it's thinking about um, particularly uh, countries that are uh, allied, uh, you know, with the United States in, you know, in Europe, but also in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so I would expect to see the environment for, um, you know, China-Europe relations uh, to to probably worsen, and the the real commitment on Beijing's side to. Uh, to, you know, to take actions to improve it in a meaningful ways, uh, it will probably won't won't be there. Lisa, do you want to weigh in on the Central Asia piece of that? Uh, well, yeah. I, at first, I was just going to say that, you know, I do believe that um, China uses BRI, uh, at least in many cases, as a tool of strategic influence. Um, I, they have all the other, you know, economic motivations that um, Jake uh, spelled out earlier, but what we care about most, I think, is when they might employ it as a tool of strategic influence, and there's more awareness about this, and the U.S. and Europe are motivated to work together to counter it, and I think we will see more of these efforts moving forward, uh, which, you know, I'm relatively op optimistic uh, will pay off, because I think 
these countries also want options and alternatives. They want to maintain their sovereignty and independence. So they welcome uh, other countries investing in their infrastructure. In Central Asia, it's you're, there's a lot more skepticism, obviously, about Russia, particularly Kazakhstan, the, the most economically successful century, Central Asian country, but also the country that shares a very long border with Russia has a very large, I think 40% of the uh, population in Kazakhstan is Russian speaking. So I think they are going to, on the one hand, want to see more Chinese involvement in Central Asia to try to offset Russia's influence because they're more nervous about uh, Russia's influence following uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, but they also will want to you know, maintain their sovereignty and not allow China to uh, become you know, too economically powerful or to allow themselves to become too economically dependent on China. Uh, so I think it cuts both ways for China. And I think we saw that in the SEO meetings um, a couple of weeks ago where uh, President uh, Xi Jinping was really welcomed in uh, first to Kazakhstan and then at the meeting in Samarkand in Uzbekistan, uh, his role was really highlighted. Uh, so I think, you know, in a way they, they want to offset Russian influence and look to China in part to do that. But they also are going to be wary about China also getting too much influence. And again, I think the Central Asians will welcome U.S. involvement and they'll, they'll want to have a lot of options um, to not allow you know, any one country to have too much influence in their region. All right, we're getting close to time, but Carissa and Nick, if you want to take us home and kind of talk about how you see the war kind of shifting European perceptions on China um, and whether you know, what evidence you see that that may or may not be happening. Sure. So I think the war has certainly had an effect, but I think we should be careful not to overstate what that effect is on European policy. So in 2019, the e an EU communication identified China as an economic competitor, a partner, and a systemic rival. While I think we're seeing that move closer and closer to systemic rival, I think all three are still on the table in Europe in a way that they just aren't in the United States. So I think some three probably big divergences between the European and U.S. approach. The first is that partnership piece. I mean, the U.S. is pretty reluctant, I would say, at this point to cooperate with China on much. And I think as climate in particular continues to climb on the agenda in Europe, this is certainly a space to watch because I think that that dynamic of cooperation and partnership with China might be reintroduced more strongly into the equation in Europe. Um, the second thing is that Europe loves an actor agnostic approach. They prefer to call out behaviors rather than actors. So I think at a certain point, this will start to grate a bit on the transatlantic relationship as the United States likes to call things out as their counter China strategy. You won't see that in Europe. You'll see a lot of dancing around um, calling out China directly, you know, a long lengthy description of China's behaviors without saying China outright. And then the third thing I would say is there is just a reluctance in Europe to use, you know, export control policy, some of the more aggressive tactics that the United States uses um, to protect itself and also to counter China. Um, 
I would say Europe is just not on the same page there. There's certainly um, a reluctance, reluctance to use it because they're not quite ready for retaliation from Beijing on that. And the United States has not done a great job of assuring them that we've got their back. Um, so one recommendation that we talk about in the report is kind of establishing an Article 5 for economic coercion. And I think that this idea is certainly something that you know has some legs and might maybe shift Europe's calculation if they're sure that democratic partners and allies are ready to have their back when Beijing threatens retaliation. But Nick, over to you. Yeah, no. That's your net final words. Those are all great points. I just have a, a few a few closing thoughts on the impact of the war. So I think that um it's really kind of unclear um what what way that the the Russians invasion of Ukraine will will push the Europe China relationship. I think there are really two possibilities and evidence that suggest it could go either towards a more positive relationship or a more negative relationship. So on the negative side, I think it could it could harden European views on China, and we're seeing this to some extent already um, because of the uh, evidence of a closer Russia-China relationship. And you have many countries uh, in Europe, uh, specifically uh, countries such as the Baltic states, which have a very um, very uh, hawkish view on 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 Russia, that that ev seeing evidence of China's close collaboration with Russia throughout. Um, before the war and its its, its uh, actions such as its its hesitance to condemn the invasion have really pushed them towards a, uh, a more negative view of China. And I, I mentioned before that um, that uh, Lithuania recently pulled out of a, a Belt and Road project. So I, th I think we're seeing some some moves in that more uh, more sour in relations direction. On the other hand, I think that um, I think there there's an alternative narrative that could be made about um you know that Europe really can't afford to be competing with both Russia and China at the same time especially given the the um the significant um economic damage that has been done to Europe through the the severing of um of economic and, and especially especially energy energy ties with Russia throughout the war and you know there could be an argument made especially from more of the European business community that that Europe needs to stay engaged with China economically um in order to sort of uh, mitigate some of the economic like economic damage from the war, so I think it it sort of remains to be seen which of these narratives really wins out. But I, I think um, it's definitely having some effect. Yes. All right. Well, um, we are at time, but I just wanted to thank all of you for joining, and just to have listeners um, be sure to check out the report. Um, it's really um, a, a very useful. Uh, overview of all of the things or kind of summary of all of the things that we talked about here. And I think, again, the big value is pushing back on this idea that the Belt and Road is running out of steam or that it has somehow kind of lost its legs. But in that report, we kind of lay out, again, how China is thinking about it, both in Europe and the Indo-Pacific, and lay out these scenarios for how that's likely to evolve in the future. Um, and just to help us think through these ways uh, that it might shift over time and how the United States and Europe together can continue to compete and push back against that. So the report is called Competitive Connectivity, Crafting Transatlantic Responses to the Belt and Road Initiative, and I hope folks will check it out. Um, and thanks to the CNAS research team. Um, great discussion and a really great report. So happy to have you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, Thank Andrea. you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.